the 35th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. You know that Isaiah divides into three sections, 1 to 35, chapter 40 to 66, and in between the intervening chapters are a piece of past history. And the reason being that if God could hold up a man like Sennacherib and send him back, well, what he's promised to do in the future, he can do. That's the reason why history is combined with prophecy. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, and the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands, confirm the feeble knees, say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, even God with the recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. You see, every one of those could be used as a description of the miracles that Christ wrought while he was upon earth. They were powers of the age to come, samples of what it will be like in that day. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert, and the parching ground shall become a pool, if you read the revised version, it's very suggestive. The mirage shall become a pool. The mirage. Well, you know the terrible thought of a person dying of thirst in the wilderness and he suddenly sees by the mirage palm trees and glistening waters and he hastens to it and it goes in front of him and he dies. Well, any amount of folks today are following a mirage. It's advocated by governments and all sorts of rules and regulations they pass, but they're a mirage. But all friends, one day, it's going to turn out to be real. All the things that men have hoped for have never come to anything. It's going, why? Because now God has put forth his hand and his son is coming to make it possible. So the mirage shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of waters in the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. You see, early we had one of the children called Shia Jashab, meaning the remnant shall return. Well, now it's going to be deeper and wider and fuller. The ransomed shall return, and come to Zion with songs, and everlasting joy upon their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. 
What a day that will be. May the Lord bless it to us and presently as we go on with this great prophecy of Isaiah. This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number five of the series of studies in the prophecy of Isaiah. We are considering today the first half of chapter 40 where the prophet opens with the wonderful words Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. When we realise what has been said and written before we reach chapter 40 we may begin to realise something of the wonder of this breaking in because they were spoken of being almost like Sodom. They were said to be stricken and it was no use punishing them anymore. They were turned away their ears and their eyes and their hearts and then only a remnant saved the situation. And you remember, a remnant shall return. And then we read just now, and those of you who are listening to this broadcast, you might do this as well. We read just now the 35th chapter of Isaiah, where it doesn't say now the remnant shall return, but the ransomed of the Lord shall return, because now God is beginning to speak about the whole people that belong to his, uh, under his grace, that belong to his covenant relationship. Now then, comfort ye, Comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably, but that's not a repetition of the same word comfort. The margin <laughs> advises you, it's speak you to the heart. Not merely speak ye comfortably. Speak you to the heart. And you will find a number of references, uh, I think, uh, if you look at Genesis 50, uh, there is a reference there which will give you some idea of its meaning and also its context. Genesis 50, verse 21. Israel, represented by the twelve sons and Jacob, have come down to Egypt. They've been nurtured by Joseph and at last um, the confession has been made that they were wrong when they betrayed him and Joseph said um, that verse 20 but as for you ye thought evil against me but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive now therefore fear ye not I will nourish you and your little ones and he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. He spoke to their heart. He spoke comfortably unto them. He spoke to their heart. So you see, there is a way in which this expression is used again. And it is to do with comforting them because their troubles are over. Not only did he speak to the intelligence of their mind, which of course he did, but he went deeper still and gave comfort of heart. And this is now addressed to Zion. In verse 9 of this chapter 40, it says, O Zion, thou, uh, thou Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, 
Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. I think if you will look at um, chapter 62 of this prophecy, there is a sort of repetition. Chapter 62, verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, pass, cut the highway. Gather out the stones. Lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Instead of reading, as we do in verse 9 in the authorised version, I'm back in chapter 40, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, I think you've got an indication in the margin that it should be the other way round. Uh, o thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem. It isn't Jerusalem bringing good tidings to somebody else. It's somebody telling Jerusalem the good tidings that at last their iniquity is forgiven, their restoration has come about, and the coming of the Lord has accomplished it. Well, now we come back again on our story. Chapter 40. Speak ye comfortably. All first of all, first one, this word comfort. You will see on this chart that we have in front of us, first of all, a little outline of these um, 11 verses, and then we have the distribution of the word comfort as it is found in the prophecy of Isaiah. Let's make sure that we get the hang of this. First of all, you see the, the structure of the top. Comfort to Jerusalem is the opening thought, and good tidings to Zion is the closing thought. The first is pardon, and the last is protection under the figure of a shepherd who gathers the lambs in his arm and carries in his bosom and gently leads those that are with young. And then we have the voice, which is a dominant feature of Isaiah 40. Now this immediately throws your mind back to the voice in Isaiah 6. The voice said, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Go tell this people, Hearing ye shall hear, And shall not understand, And seeing ye shall see, And not perceive. Oh, what a dreadful message. That's the one voice. Now it travels all the way to the 40th chapter, And the voice speaks again. Now the voice doesn't say, Shut their eyes and stop their ears, But speak to the heart. Go deeper than the eye and ear, to the closed heart, and say unto them. So there we have the uh, voice of the forerunner, the mouth having spoken, and then the voice of the prophet picking up the story, and in the uh, second part, the comment that he makes, and the Lord picks up, all flesh is grass. Well, that's near enough to peg our thoughts. Now, will you look at this distribution of the word Nahem, which is the word Nahum, the name of the prophet, which is the word comfort in Isaiah. We have the, the 40th chapter in the first verse. The Lord God will come, and all flesh is grass. Will you look at the last reference, 66, 66 verse 13. The last reference. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you. 
and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And then we have the remainder of the chapter which you read, and at last we have all flesh shall be out of warring. That's the last verses. I don't think time will permit us, and it may not be profitable for to occupy the moments in wading through all these, uh, but you will be having this chart in front of you or listening, and after this little study is over, you can use it in your private study and realise that there is a superintendence even of the use of one word, especially if it's a key word, in the Scriptures. One of those little evidences of the overruling inspiration of God. For you couldn't imagine the prophet putting down the word comfort, first of all, and then writing his, his prophecy all round it. It comes naturally with him. But you'll see there, we have in the second case, in the 49th chapter, the acceptable time. And if you look down, you say, oh, I know what's coming. In chapter 61, preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And sure enough, we, we say that the prisoners go forth in the first occurrence, and the prison is opened in the last but one. You see, you're no accident about it. It's quite obvious that there's a, uh, over, well, overruling, uh, providence. Then the very central reference, undenominated by the letter E, thy God reigneth. So we have, the Lord God will come, and the Lord will come with fire. He comes to save and he comes to execute judgment. And in the middle, the Lord thy God reigneth. This is when he takes to his, himself his great power and reigns like the book of the Revelation says. And when that takes place, the last words of Isaiah 35 we've just read, that sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now we come back to Isaiah 40, but there are one or two passages here that need a fair amount of care. Verse 2. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What does that mean? She hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now I'm going to ask you to let me turn now to a number of references because here is a principle that is not very often explained to folks. We just read about the double and we say, well, I suppose it's got a meaning and pass by. Let's stop, shall we? Now, first of all, we go to the prophet Ezekiel and then to Jeremiah. So that's immediately following Isaiah. First of all, Ezekiel 21, verse 14. Ezekiel 21, verse 14. Thou therefore, son of man, prophesy, and smite thine hands together, and let the sword be doubled the third time, the sword of the slain, the sword of the great men that are slain, which entereth into their privy chambers. There's a first reference there about doubling in connection with judgment. Well, we won't stop there because it's the accumulation of these passages, rather. Jeremiah 16, verse 18. Jeremiah 16, verse 18. Dear, my Bible's all so clinging together, I can't open the cha- pages. Uh, 16, did I say 18? 
And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double because they have defiled my land. You notice that? A recompense is to be doubled. And now chapter 17, verse 18. Let them be confounded that persecute me, but let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but let not me be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with a double destruction. You know, it's growing, isn't it? This is no mere, just a bit of poetry. There's something here that we want to weigh over. A double punishment. Now, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 7. 61, verse 7. It says in verse um, 6, But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double, everlasting joy shall be unto them. You may call to mind the passage in the book of the Revelation that Babylon is to receive double because of her iniquity in the earth. Double. And the last reference that I'll give you in this before we get to its meaning is Zechariah 9, 12. Zechariah 9, 12. Turn ye to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. Now in the first case, a double portion was the mark of the firstborn. The firstborn's portion was double. So that when Joseph was given the coat of many colours and given the position of being the firstborn, although he wasn't number one to be born, he has no tribe of Joseph in the Bible. He has his two sons instead. He has a double portion, the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. They both represent Joseph. But that's one aspect. Now, Dr. Young, with whom we associate Young's Concordance, and we would expect a man who'd take the trouble to give us a concordance of that size, would know something about the teaching of Scripture, at least the wording of Scripture. He translates this verse, When it says, ye have received of the Lord's hand double for all our sins, he translated, that accepted has been her punishment. Accepted has been her punishment. Now, what are we going to make of this? Well, I think there's a, there's a verse that we must turn to now. Just excuse me a moment. In the book of Leviticus, which I think will throw light upon this passage. Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, verse 40 to 42. Now then, this is in the law of Moses, looking down the age to the day of Israel's repentance. Leviticus 26. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass which they trespassed against me and that also they have walked contrary unto me 
and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they accept, then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant. There's the words. If they accept the punishment. You say, well how is it that uh, one version says um, they are pardoned, their iniquity is pardoned, and the other one says punishment. Well, you may know that in the Hebrew language, one word can have a, a two, two meanings, a, two related meanings, according to whether it's that way up or that way up. So that when we read in Genesis that Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. The margin says, he might have said, is my iniquity greater than can be forgiven? Well, what, what do you do with it? Well, you see, iniquity always carries with it punishment. Let me illustrate it this way. The very self-same Hebrew word for lending a pound is for borrowing a pound. You say, why, that's all right, I like that. Ah, oh, you wait. There are ways in which it has to be put. But don't you see, friend, the Hebrew language is right. You cannot lend anybody anything if he won't borrow it. There's always two sides to the question. Now, when the moment iniquity comes before God, it carries with it the necessary punishment. There's no, no possibility. Either you'll bear the punishment or the Son of God who takes your place. Well, it cannot be just let off. So, here it says, and then when Cain says, uh, my, is, my punishment is greater than I can bear, or the alternative, is my iniquity greater than be forgiven, because he bear our iniquities and they're forgiven. I know it's rather difficult to follow, but you see. So, the, the alternative translation seems to be fitting with all this other, that if, uh, when you reach your extremity, you acknowledge the justice of your punishment, then the pardon of iniquity comes and you receive double. They're going to get their firstborn's position, but they're not going to be let off because they happen to be the firstborn. There must be this acceptance. For, for do remember in the epistle to the Romans, not only is God concerned that you should be justified, don't forget this, he plans the whole way of salvation that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. And so we've got that thought there. Well now we'll pass on. The 40th chapter of Isaiah. After that, after that recognition that their punishment has been right and they've accepted it and they received the Lord's hand double, the voice of him that cried in the wilderness. You see, in Isaiah 6, the voice was crying in the temple. The voice of him that cried in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now here is a problem. When we turn to the New Testament, we find a little difficulty. When John was approached by the priests and the, the uh, messengers, they say, uh, Art thou he that should come? Uh, art thou this prophet? Or different ways. 
They said, Art thou Elijah? He said, No. He said, No. But when they were speaking to the Lord, he said to them, about John the Baptist, if you will receive it, this is Elijah that should come. But it's got an if in front of it. If you will receive me and the kingdom, here's the prophet going before me. But you won't. So he was born in the spirit and to go in the spirit and power of Elijah as a forerunner and did. Then comes the wait. A long interval. And then the true Elijah is yet to come according to the prophet Malachi. So if you weave all those together you'll find that he came to manifest that principle but didn't fulfill it in the fullest sense because all flesh did not then believe. All flesh was not, as it were, gathered. But we come back again now to this voice that cried to um, the prophet. It says, The voice said, cry. Verse 6. The voice said, cry. Now, do remember uh, that you've got no indication in the printed page as the tone of voice, have you? They don't print what God says in gold and what the man said in black. You've got to use a little bit of ordinary common sense now. In Isaiah 6, You've got it more distinctly. The voice was heard of the Lord saying, and Isaiah said, I, here am I, send me. The two speaking. Well now let's do it here, because this is, uh, otherwise it doesn't make sense. Verse 6. The voice said, cry. Tell them this, that the warfare is over. The sin is pardoned. The double has been received. And instead of Isaiah jumping to it, he stops. You know, we were looking on Thursday about the resurrection. And they were stunned. Instead of jumping to it at once and believing, oh yes, they couldn't believe for very joy. They couldn't believe that it was possible. They were stopped and waited and hesitated and they had to be argued into it. And visions had to come and angels had to speak. They could even say this is the third day and didn't realise what they were saying. So don't misjudge this prophet if he says, oh dear, that sounds too good to be true. This, after all he's had to say about this people and their sinfulness. The voice said cry. Now the next part of the verse is what Isaiah replies. And he said, what shall I cry? And what's your hesitation? Well, he says, all flesh is grass. And all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth. The flower fadeth. Because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely, the people is grass. Well, you said a right thing, a true thing, Isaiah. But the restoration of the people of Israel doesn't depend upon all flesh that is grass. It doesn't matter whether it's the League of Nations or the Balfour Declaration or the United Nations or whatever it might be. However much they guarantee Israel's sovereignty, God says they're not going to give it to them. It's not going to depend upon anything that man shall do. When the moment comes, the Lord will make bare his arm. And he'll see to it. 
he that scattered Israel will gather him. So Isaiah, while you're right to say all flesh is grass, don't you put that in between, because you've missed out one thing. Verse 5, I'll say it again. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, because all flesh is grass? No, because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You've put all flesh is grass where you ought to have said, and if God says so, he'll carry it out. Oh, Isaiah, you see? So let's come again. Verse 8. God picks up the words again. Yes. The grass withereth. You're quite right, Isaiah. You're quite right. And Israel have learned that long lesson. They trusted in that broken reed of Egypt and went down. All flesh is grass. The grass withereth. The flower faded. But, you see, we're back again where we were. But, the word of our God shall stand forever. Now that's truth for you and for me. Whatever promise God has made doesn't depend upon churches or chapels or Berean forward movements or anything that man has done. They are merely instruments in the hand of the Lord and very fading ones at that. But what God has promised is able to perform. The first father of faith, Abraham, is credited with saying that. That he staggered not at the promise of God, but was strong in faith, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So here we have then. God recognising that all flesh is grass, and they cannot be trusted. But he said the time has come when flesh is to be put aside. And the simple basis, the simple hope you have is that God who has made a promise will keep his word. I think we need that today just as much as ever. Because not only is Isaiah a part of the word of God, but so is the epistle to the Ephesians, or the book of the Revelation, or all the rest of it. So while we are thankful for human cooperation and the one and the other of us that are doing our best, our little best, to make known the truth of God, don't let's be like Atlas trying to support the whole world. Don't let's take the language of Hamlet and say, the world is out of joint, all cursed spite that ever I was born to put it right. You weren't. There was one who was born to put it right, and he was the child born and the son given. It all devolves upon him. So we've got now this emphasis. Now, he comes at the bottom to, to draw our attention to him. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule before him. It's rather interesting to know that the, the hand and the arm are related, especially the strong hand. It occurs in the book of Nehemiah that occupied our attention a few weeks ago. And it is the word there for repairing the destroyed and the damaged walls of Jerusalem. He's coming with a strong hand, not the strong hand of a military commander, but the strong hand of a mason and a builder. This is restoration incipient in the word translated here, strong hand. It comes 30 times over in the Old Testament and Nehemiah 3 contains the word. And then the arm, if you could see that word in the original and you spoke the original, you couldn't help but see that the word means 
something that you use when you sow seed. I don't know whether in the days in which we live, we're getting very much much like the the little boy who was taken to the country, he didn't like milk coming from a cow, he'd rather have it from a shop. Well, there's some people today whose only conception of sowing seed is a great mechanical device going along like a juggernaut across the, the fields. But if you remember in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, the sower has strapped round his waist the seed and he goes and scatters it with his arm. And the arm here is the sower and the hand here is the builder. Incipient in the very words that he used. So they're worth pondering a moment. This is God who comes to build and to plant, as he said he would in the prophecy of Jeremiah. All right. But there's something more about it. Verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He is the flock. And you remember that he first of all came to one section of the sheep and limited his ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in fullness of time, John wrote the gospel and said, he also said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now here's the shepherd. Now I don't think it's an accident that history records that the shepherd kings were reigning in Egypt when Joseph went down. And he said to the, to the king who was reigning in Egypt, all oh, my people have all been looking after flocks, so he gave them Goshen. And it says in that very day that a shepherd was an abomination to the Egyptians because the shepherd kings were not Egyptians, they were conquerors. But it was a shepherd king that saved Israel in the beginning. And it will be a shepherd king that will save them at the end. But the true shepherd king this time, not a barbaric Asiatic invader. So we have the shepherd and the wonder of his gentleness. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. Somebody raised the question, how was it that the Eastern Bible shepherd, how was it he could stand in front of a flock of sheep and he could call them by their name and they come out to him? And when others have tried to do it, they, they take not the slightest notice of it. Well, you see, friends, what you've got to do is to carry them in your bosom. And that's what the shepherd actually does. He picks up the lamb. He puts him in his great cloak and he carries him for a bit. And the little lamb and the man are so mingled together. I dare say they smell rather strongly, but you've got to put up with that. The little lamb is always associating himself with that man. That's what the Lord does. He associates us with himself. It's a stoop down for him. It'll be a stoop down for you and me to carry a lamb about all day. He wouldn't say it was very pleasant. Neither was redemption very pleasant. And there we get now the Lord manifesting the great king by the shepherd. As a, just a corollary to this and a conclusion, remember that the shepherd is given three different sort of uh, qualifications or adjectives. And they seem to fit three different psalms. You know Psalm 22, which starts with the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They pierced my hands and my feet. 
That's the cross. And Psalm 23 that follows Psalm 22, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's the crook. And Psalm 24, when it opens and let the King of Glory go in, that's the crown. The cross, the crook, and the crown. Now we have three different titles to the shepherd. In the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, he's the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. That is very much like Psalm 22. The cross is in view. And then we have in Hebrews 13, and I shan't be able to quote this without spoiling it, so we'll read that passage. Hebrews 13, we have the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd, but here he's referred to as the great shepherd. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the great shepherd. And one more reference, the first of Peter, that's a little bit further on, the first of Peter, chapter 5, Verse, chapter 5, we'll read the first four verses, I think. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. You notice the difference? He was a witness of the sufferings, but he's a partaker of the glory. Isn't that wonderful? Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. We looked at this this morning because the word bishop came before us to be examined. And this oversight is the word, the verbal form of the word bishop. Our English pronunciation has softened episcopos. The P becomes a B and the SK becomes SH. Bishop, we say, episcopos, says the Greek. And the oversight is the verbal form. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but for a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The chief shepherd is the last phase. When he shall appear. So we have the shepherd rounding out this gathering them back again, and he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in God's good time, although it will never depend upon flesh, which is like grass. Now you can understand that Peter, who ministered to this very people, picks that out, and at the end of his first chapter, he says, all flesh is grass, but the gospel we preach is the word of our God shall endure forever. He lifts it out. So, on that note, let us bring this little study to a conclusion and be thankful that God is not only the God of recompenses, the God of righteousness, the God of holiness, but the God of all comfort. And while we, we do not usurp Israel's position and take to ourselves promises that belong to them, surely we can read in the epistles that are written for our learning 
how he is the God of comfort to us. And so, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, is an expression that is beyond all the limitations of dispensational divisions. He says it to all classes and all callings, provided they are his people and the ransomed of the Lord.